What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Rob Santos, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And before we jump ahead into the episode proper today, I want to remind everyone that if you enjoy our content, if you feel like you're the kind of person who wants access to episodes a week in advance, plus the ability to add books to our future episodes list, you know, even read some of our own short fiction pieces, basically what I mean is if you like listening to two epic, uh, two nerds talk about epic fantasy books until they're blue in the face, consider checking out our Patreon page at Inking Out Loud. Or if, you know, one-time donations are more your style, we also have a page on coffee. So, now, straight into the episode for today, Drew and I are talking about Book 10 of The Dresden Files by Jim Butcher. We're going now into Small Favor. I've got so much to talk about today, so let's get her done. (laughs) Drew, if you would kindly recap Book 10 for us. All right. Small Favor opens with Harry enjoying a domestic moment with the Carpenter family, having a snowball fight as the weather turns extremely wintry. In the midst of the fun, though, he gets attacked by several fae from the summer court, known as Gruffs. This sets him off on a wild journey, made even more complicated when Murphy calls him to the scene of a destroyed building. Harry is confronted by Mab, who strong-arms him into being her emissary in a conflict involving Marconi's abduction by mysterious forces. As Harry tracks down leads in an attempt to rescue Marconi, he finds himself in conflict once again with the Denarians, including the mantis-like Tessa and her right-hand demon, Rosanna. It turns out Nicodemus is behind Marconi's abduction, and Harry calls in reinforcements to handle the situation. With Lucio on board and the Archive set up to mediate the conflict, Harry and Nicodemus come face-to-face at Chicago's Aquarium. Harry quickly realizes it's a trap meant for the Archive, and springs into action. With the help of Kincaid, the Knights of the Cross, Lucio, and some mysterious magic, Harry kills 11 of the Denarians, but Tessa escapes with the Archive in her clutches. Knowing the world is doomed if Nicodemus turns the Archive, Harry takes drastic measures. He offers a trade to the Denarians, willing to give up the 11 coins and Fidelacius. Rosanna takes Harry and the Knights to Nicodemus' hideout on an island in Lake Michigan, where he has both Marconi and the Archive captured. Harry springs his trap, setting off a wild fight and rescuing the captives. After Guard and Lucio arrive on the scene in a helicopter with Hendrix behind the gun, things are looking up. But as they're getting pulled aboard, Tessa tricks Harry and shoots Michael, leaving him bloody and hanging from the helicopter. Harry is stranded while Guard pulls out. He flees, chased by Magog, but the eldest Gruff arrives and kills Magog with no effort at all. Harry is confronted by the eldest, who seems to be a wizard of unsurpassed skill. Harry uses the Gruff's respect for him to get out, using the token of summer to send the Gruffin to Chicago to get Harry a donut. But things aren't as easy as all that. Nicodemus is waiting on the boat as Harry climbs aboard. Nicodemus invokes the shadow of Lachiel, intending to capture Harry, but Harry tricks him and kills him. With Deirdre and the Denarian's lackeys shooting at him, Harry is narrowly rescued from hypothermia and bullet-itis by Thomas and Murphy. In the aftermath, Harry offers one of the swords to Murphy, but she turns it down. Harry and the Carpenters receive good news. Michael will live, though there may be long-lasting effects on his body. While Harry is venting in the hospital chapel, he's visited again by Mab, and by a mysterious janitor, who leaves Harry an annotated copy of the Two Towers, and the knowledge that Harry has been touched by the Archangel Uriel. And, lastly, Harry goes on a date with Lucio. As we've said many times before on Inking Out Loud, Congrats on the sex. Oh, Harry. hey, yeah, I'll, I'll raise one to that, actually. You know what? Hold on. I'll, I'll bust out the can for this one. Congrats, Harry Dresden. 
Well-deserved for both of them. I think Lucio needed it as well. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> All right. So, whew, I'm growing to appreciate starting off with style. I'm going to start my point here by saying, now that we're 10 books in, of course, and I haven't brought it up yet, I'm starting to appreciate more of the informal part of the storytelling here. And I've never really stopped to observe it before, but I'm paying attention now and I see it everywhere. And especially if, I'm, if I think about it too, I've laughed about it so many times. These little moments in narration where we get, and I have the, a quote here as an example. Its outer ring of exhibits sported a number of absolutely huge pools containing millions of gallons of water and a number of dolphins and those little white whales whose names I could never remember. The same as the caviar, uh, beluga, beluga whales. There were rocks and trees on the outside, yada, yada, yada. Like I said, we're 10 books in and I'm only making note of this now, but I love this stream of consciousness style of storytelling. And I'm sure there's probably some formal name for it. Drew, you might be able to help me out with that if there is or not, but it's really growing on me. And I, I'm stopping and I'm laughing at these moments and I cannot let another 10 books go by before I commented on it. That's all. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I do not know if there is a formal name for this type of story. There ought to beyond be. just a, you know, a yeah, close first person. I narrator. might invent one then. Might be up to me. Um, Too much power. There's there's probably one out there. Yeah, there's probably, probably some. You know, if you know one, contact a, us. Egg-headed a academic who, who <laughs> knows uh, or, or who invented it, you know, at some point, but uh but yeah it's definitely really interesting going from sweet silver blues last week mm. to to this this week you know just going back and forth from uh butcher to cook and back where both of them have a very informal voice an informal style of storytelling but they're different in a lot of ways uh i think dresden has a more straightforward voice and then veers off into that uh, uh, this currently unnamed style mm -hmm. as you're talking about um whereas with garrett that's like all the time uh that's like all he does and it almost reminds me of like an epistolary thing like in the okay. Black company yeah. where it, it it feels at some points that harry is recording this after the fact that it's like something harry is remarking on in hindsight because there are occasional points where he'll there will be some remark indicating that he has future knowledge or he has hindsight on and context for an event in these books. Yeah. Um, but unlike the Black Company, there is no conceit given to us, no vehicle where it's like an, an epigraph or or some reference to a journal that Harry's writing in or, or anything like that. So we don't know exactly if, if this is a recorded story that Harry put down or if it's butcher using Harry's informal voice every once in a while to add flavor to the story that he's telling mm. us, if that makes sense. Yeah. That's a flavor that I like. That's yeah, exactly. Um, to flavor that a lot of like obviously i mean the the, the genre works it's it's very tongue-in-cheek it's very self-aware and it's 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 very uh open it, it's yeah um I'll, I'll leave the floor open to you though if you want to jump us off on our next style point i have a couple more here but i don't want to blow my load uh, too figuratively early one other uh main style point and that is just to say that after i had some some nitpicks uh in terms of the flow and 
technical quality of the pros in White Knight. Uh, I thought I thought those were all gone uh, in this book. This was a very smooth reading experience. I mean, I read basically the whole book in one day, uh, and and I can't do that if I'm constantly stumbling over typos and and misspellings and and grammar issues wow, that, everywhere. Like, physically slows um, down the book for you. Eh? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, because I'll, I'll like stop and and reread it and be like you know and then and then rewrite it in my head often um yeah it's like a mental and this is something i've i've uh i i may have talked about in some of our star wars episodes when the rogue squadron episodes with michael stackpole uh sometimes when i'm reading books i'll read a sentence that i don't really like and i will mentally rewrite it in my head like i'll be like this is how i would have written this sentence and i I've done that at points with Butcher, with Dresden, where I'm like, this just feels awkward. This doesn't feel like it flows right. I didn't ever find myself doing that in small favor. This is a very clean, smooth, fast read. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I definitely don't pick up on those things as often as you do. And I really, really definitely will not as redundant as that is when I'm when I'm doing with uh, when I'm reading these last few because I'm doing all of it on audio again while I'm working. So I, I will never myself notice this kind of thing if I'm listening. I'm just I'm just not that kind of reader. Sometimes I notice it if, I, if I'm if I'm reading on the actual page, but it's not very often I stop and I make a mental note for it. So I'm yeah. Sure. Um, yeah. See here, I'm gonna. Can, oh, have we have we heard of ley lines yet, or is this another new one, another new bit of lore that we're? I think we have, but I'm not a hundred percent certain. That may just be me bringing in knowledge of ley lines from other series that I've read. Sure, because yeah. it's not a it's not a new idea. It didn't bother me um, much, you know. I mean, it, it, I've been complaining up until now about things that were these vital things about the world building that we're not learning until this late in the series. But this one didn't bother me. I don't know why it didn't bother me, but it it didn't. I was like, okay, I at least had to bring it up now before someone was like, Rob, this is a perfect example of what pisses you off. Why didn't you mention anything? I don't know why. <laughs> these ones I'm fine with. Yeah, I didn't have a problem with it, yeah. and and that may be because it's already been yeah, mentioned, previously or established. I just sort of assumed it was already mentioned. Um. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it yeah. just it fits. I mean, it, it makes sense that he would use ley lines in in this mythology in his world building because it's the sort of real world mythology that fits right into the puzzle. Yeah how uh, how are you feeling since we're we're loosely on world building? How are you feeling about the Denarians after this book? Have they been cheapened at all for you? Because they don't strike me as as much of a threat as they once did after seeing Harry obliterate as many as he has. And like, like how are you feeling? Yeah. So I, I did make a note. Um, I was going to bring this up in, in character, but I, this, I suppose you're right. This does kind of fall under world building and, and maybe power creep as a, a writing theme. Okay. Um, there are definitely points in the series where it seems Harry's power level is getting too high and Butcher has to like reel it back in a bit. And this book definitely felt that way where I'm curious to see if in the next couple of books, we're going to see the scale and oomph of Harry's magic get dialed back a bit 
Because you're right. I mean, the, the first time he came up against the Denarians, it was like all he could do just to live. And then, yes, he gets the soul fire helping him. Uh, but it's not just with soul fire in, in that one scene that he's just absolutely battering uh, Denarians around. Yeah. So and uh, it, I'll be curious to see how that m- progresses as we keep reading. It's it's not just in context with Harry's relative power level, though. I just mean the Denarians themselves and their overall level of threat. Because we have this moment l- later, near the end, when Michael asks Harry, how did you know? Like, knowing that the Denarians would break if they just if they charged at them. And Harry quickly explains that he mm-hmm. guessed, you know, based on the fact that, well, hey, they're immortal. Therefore, they have the instincts of a predator on the Serengeti. I was, I would just, it seemed too quick and too convenient for me. I got the idea, like this idea of this, this bully who is surprised by the charge by the weaker guy. It's been done before a few times in, in fantasy. It's just, this sort of cheapens the Denarians a bit for me. I mean, one of them, which I forget who, one of them literally just finished before this waxing rhapsodic about how he'd watched mankind being crafted out of the muck, as he put it. Like, they they speak as if they are so... Oh yeah, Thorned sur- Namshiel. That, was that yeah. Thorned Namshiel? Thorn Namshield? Yeah. Thorn Namshield? Yeah, something like that. Thorned. Thorned Namshield? Yeah, like, yeah. It's hard to, because, yeah, I'm hearing it on the audio, audiobook constantly. I have to look up a spelling for it. But, yeah, T-H-O-R-N-E-D. Like, well, yeah, but how is the second word? Namshield? Namshield? Shield. Yeah, they're okay. all, like, E-L. You know, they're ah, all, no. they all have, Nam-shiel. like, that kind of okay, traditional cool. Hebrew angel um, yeah. name construction Uriel, Namshiel, you know, Lashiel. We get like, the blah, sense blah, blah, that blah. they're these ageless beings and more entities than actual people. But then we're they're being reduced to falling for a mindless outmaneuver based on their predator instincts that Harry just guessed in the moment that they seem to have. Like these they come off and they're introduced as these higher beings, but then we see them get outplayed so simply because they have basic predator instincts i was like i don't know i just kind of cheapened them they the the overall level of threat of the denarians kind of got a scale down kind of got scaled down i should say for me in this book i I can understand that for sure yeah i I didn't have a specific problem with the like predator thing but i i think you have a valid complaint there thanks i guess i'll find out if others agree or not um like if i really kind of like sit back and think about it it's like I could see a few of them panicking, but it is weird to think that all of them would have the same reaction. Yeah. Like I could see Nicodemus. Like it makes sense that Nicodemus thinks he's in control of the situation. And then Harry turns the tables on him and he panics because all of his well-laid plans are falling apart. I definitely I like could that. see Magog, you know, like freaking out because he's like this mindless animal. I could see Namshiel freaking out because he just got absolutely wrecked by Harry and the soul fire, you know, the, the day before that, but like Tessa and, uh, and Rosanna, especially like they're, they're craftier. They seem to be a little more cerebral. So mm. I don't know. Yeah. I don't but know. That's a, I, I don't, I don't have too big a deal with it. Yeah. I think it was just because it was so it, like, it was so close to the heels of, Thorned Namshiel in his his whole speech about how mankind are just so low and beneath him. If that had been like earlier in the book, then we see, yeah, this is their comeuppance. This is what's been brewing. But we just have one, and then the next page suddenly they're basic predators again. And it's like, oh, but this mm-hmm. this is just me. I'm just I'm just being a bitch. Don't worry about me. Mm. Um, okay. 
uh, see here. Any more style points, dude? No, I don't think so. There's just one last one I have, and I God, I, I'm just—it's it's one last complaint I have about style here, and it's—it's it's something I've complained about before. It's just this, these little moments where, what's the plan? I told him, that is a bad plan. It wasn't time for a good one. And once again, Harry comes up with the plan, but since we can't have it revealed until a more dramatically appropriate time, we just have to get. I told him. Those three-word sentences, I told her. That happened with Murphy a few times as well. Someone else gets one last detail of the plan at the last moment, and Harry sends it flying just to come back later. It's just There's no dramatic effect gained for it anymore because it's, it's happened so many times. It's just, sure. Okay. All right, I'm, gonna, I'm done bitching, and now that we're going on to characters, I'm going to have a lot of things to glow about. All right, well, let's start with Harry. Yes, we have to. So, I don't, I don't think, um, like, Harry wasn't as compelling to me in this book as he was in, like, say, Proven Guilty, um, but it, it was a good arc. It was a really good character arc. I thought the, the, the subtlety in the whole, like, Mab messing with his mind and him losing his uh, blasting rod. Yeah. I thought that was really good, and the way that Butcher played up the um, the suspicion of his friends uh, was great because the, the clues were there if if you read closely enough to pick them up, and I certainly didn't pick them up. I did not, especially uh, that, doing audio that he wasn't using his blasting rod now. To be fair, I was also kind of like going along and thinking like, didn't he lose his blasting rod like in a previous book? And and so I, I wasn't really thinking about it. Um but and I didn't take the time to go back to the beginning scenes to be like, did he have his blasting rod at the beginning? No, that scene floored so me. I didn't that scene floored yeah, me because um, I didn't remember. I was like, huh, where is his blasting rod? And then I had that same moment that Harry did. So I was a little more immersed, I feel like, than you are. I yeah. was like, oh my god. I felt No, no, I, that's what I'm saying. I was immersed. Like I I didn't take the time to really interrogate it. And so that caught me off guard too. It was a great, a great revelation. Oh yeah, oh, yeah I guess um, I'm agreeing wholeheartedly. Agreeing even yeah, more. And, yeah. And I think the the part that made it so good was that in Harry's mind, it was all about the suspicion of Lashiel. And and in my mind, it, it was like, okay, why are they suspicious? And it had me second-guessing the way this world works. You know, this idea of like, well, he already gave Michael the coin to give to Father Forthill. Lashiel's influence is gone. Why is this suspicion still hanging over him? Why is there this weirdness going on? Uh, with like, you know, he thinks about his blasting rod or thinks about creating fire and he gets this like stabbing pain in his yeah. head. And I'm like, yeah, is this related to Hellfire? Like, is there still some? Did Lashiel's shadow like pull a fast one and really she's been there all along? Like, so there was a great heightening of tension throughout this whole plot line, and then a wonderful release of tension. I agree. In, I agree. So much. In that scene with Michael in the in the workshed. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, I was. I I myself had not been paying close enough to attention to even notice the lack of 
fire and blasting rod. So when Michael asked Harry, where is your blasting rod? I My reaction was so close to Harry's that it might as well have been the same thing. Like, I was, huh, where, <laughs> huh, where did, and then I said, there was that whole moment of self-doubt. Like, have I not yeah. been, how would it, my, I couldn't even finish thoughts. <laughs> I was so confused there. So Butcher, I took that hook, line, and sinker, man. That was very well done by Jim Butcher. And as far as my, my points about Harry go, I mean, I had nothing new to add about Harry besides the fact that I just have a couple more one-liners that I loved, that I loved, that I absolutely loved. There was this moment, the fact that most of the men had their tongues removed probably didn't help anything either. Nick should have taken my advice and read that evil overlord list. Seriously, someone a few yards off to my right shouted something at me. It came out as totally mangled gobbledygook. I shouted back at them in similar wordless garbage, pretending I didn't have a tongue either, and added a rude gesture to the tirade. I don't know if it was the perfect charade, or if it just shocked him into stunned silence, but either way, it got the same effect. I went on by him without garnering any further reaction whatsoever. You know? Harry Dresden, in one moment. Loved it. Was- so, the other big thing that stood out to me with Harry is his relationship with the Archive in this book. Oh, yeah? Oh, with Ivy. Okay, um, got you. Uh, I've I've been on the record uh, multiple times previously that I'm most invested in Harry when he is involved with father relationships, where Harry is a father figure. And the archive isn't quite the same sort of like father-daughter relationship as Harry and Molly is, but there's still a little bit of it there. Um, in, in this book, it starts evolving more into, like, a he sees her as a friend rather than, like, a a surrogate daughter uh, the way he kind of did when he first met her. But it was still really tender, you know, seeing seeing Harry have these protective instincts and uh, and and put aside certain prejudices that he has in order to do what's best for the archive for Ivy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm 100% on Harry's side as far as Ivy is concerned. And all these concerns that Lucio has about this, this girl not being able, you know, that it being too dangerous for her to, to form interpersonal relationships with other people and come to care about other people. That's so ridiculous. Like I, I don't, it's just, I find it hard that anybody can seriously lie to themselves and fool themselves into thinking what Lucio is thinking. I just, I don't know. I'm I, I I look so so forward to the the relationship between Ivy and Harry and how that continues and how he gets to show Lu- uh, Lucio Lucio pardon me um, just how wrong she is. I mean, I've got a few questions about arc about the archive. I guess maybe you can maybe this was explained and you can help me understand or maybe it wasn't explained. Um, but why like Lucio's main concern is that a lot of the archives bad memories are still there behind, you know, a wall or whatnot. And that if she has too many close personal relationships or she has too much trauma, it could unlock this. Or she could just be completely at the mercy of all this trauma in her past, all these memories of the archive, all the bad memories of the archive, right? That was not at all what I got out no? of it. I, this has been I, two weeks since I read what this. What I got out of so it I could be wrong. is that it's just the overwhelming weight of history and the like accumulated memories and emotions 
overwhelming people, overwhelming these women uh, when they become the archives. Just emotion and, in general, not just like the negative. Uh, and and when the idea that like their life isn't their own. And so if they can remove this, the instinct to living their own lives, they remove the danger of succumbing to that mental oh, wow. emotional That's, stress. I see what you're saying. It's not the impression that I got, though. Okay. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll have to go back yeah, and read it. Again. And, and that was like why Ivy's mother killed herself like almost immediately because she was like, I don't get to live my own life. Mm. I thought it was just the. Uh... Because, yeah, okay, that makes more sense. To me, what I came out of it, with the the impression I came out of it was that the, the accumulated weight of all the negative memories far outweigh all the positive memories. She doesn't have, she this this little girl in this life, Ivy, never got to experience enough positivity to outweigh the, all the negativity that the archive has in her past and all these memories that's that's what i got out of it so and that that one i had a problem with so i i hear your explanation now it makes a little more sense i don't know if i still believe yeah or if it's if it's still believable i should say if i still buy it at face value but okay your explanation is better than the one i came out of it with (laughs) okay so but yeah with ivy Um, i feel so i feel so bad for Ivy. like it's so it's so messed up the torture she had to go through at, at this young age here is she's she's growing so much more likable too you know, I love this moment where she has even the Denarians at checkmate. You know, it was like it was all recorded. Of course, everything was. Your father's failing business. Your sale to the Temple of Isis. If you like, I could draw you a cost-benefit analysis of your training versus your earnings in the first year. I could use crayons. I love crayons. It's just oh, she's so creepy and intimidating. Mm-hmm. I love that Harry also takes this moment to think. You know, she if she is she trying to shake her down? Is she trying to intimidate her? She's got to work on her technique a little bit. You know, there's again this moment of Harry who just he he's ner- he wants to help, <laughs> and I just it's adorable. Yeah. It's intimidating. I love the juxtaposition. These two are gonna be. A, I feel like they're gonna be a, a source of endless fun going forward, and I look forward to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, the one thing I that like was just missing a little bit for me, um, as far as Harry goes, was um, I wanted more Harry and Molly. Um, that remains like my favorite relationship in the series is is this father daughter dynamic between Harry and Molly, and like that's why I look. I really liked Small Favor. Uh, it is one of I think three books in the series that I've given five stars to. Five, uh, wow. uh, my, uh, and a- along with Deadbeat and Proven Guilty, I-, I don't think it's my favorite. I think Proven Guilty is still my favorite because of the focus on Harry and Molly in that book. This book has the best spectacle of the series so far, uh, which, if you had told me I was going to say that. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I would have been like, no, there's no way that there's anything better than than uh, Sue <laughs> as far as spectacle goes. But, like, I, 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 think, I think this was. Like, I thought this book was just rollicking good fun, great action sequences, you know. Uh, but it just didn't quite hit the same highs of character development as proven. That's fair. That's fair. <clears throat> um... 
see here. I forget where I was going to go after that with Molly. I'd actually written down a slot here to talk about Molly, and I really have nothing else to... I, I didn't end up writing anything in there to elaborate on, so I think that goes to say that I agree with you. You know, um, as far as the character work between Harry and Molly, there's going to be, I, sh I am assuming, a lot more of it in other books. So Yeah, yeah. Um, I just kind of assumed there was going to be more of it in this one because this very quickly was like, this is clearly a Carpenter's book, you know? Yeah. Where it opens with Harry hanging out with the carpenters. I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah, here we go. Um, and it and it also was no surprise to me after, you know, our conversation on White Knight, where we talked about the Denarians and Nicodemus, and and you brought up his long absence from the series. Yeah, and I pointed out. I'm like, well, Nicodemus was gone, but Lashiel was there, so we still had the through line going of the Denarians. And then as soon as Lashiel was gone, that was when I said, I expect. Nicodemus and the rest of the Denarians will show up again soon. Enter stage right. Yeah, and then and then this book opens with Harry at the Carpenters, and I'm like, okay, yes, this is going to happen. This is thematically know? appropriate. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. I just I thought of one little note about Molly, though. This is not about her at all or her character. This is just a stupid little aesthetic point. Um, I've made I've I've complained in, a, in the first few episodes. I obviously stopped by three or four, or else it would have got gotten exhausting, but. Hell's Bells, again and again and again and again. I've gotten completely yeah. used to it. There's a new one that's starting to pop up here and there, starting to bother me a little bit. And that's since we're on Molly, I guess I'll bring it up here. Grasshopper, is that grating on your nerves? Oh yet? yeah, yeah, yeah. He does call her Grasshopper a lot. It's getting a little uh, once or twice would be far more endearing and thematically appropriate. I feel like than like every four pages. Yeah, but you know. Aesthetic, personal, subjective opinion. I'm not going to use that to be like, oh, butcher. That's just me. I'm sure there's others who love it. Um, sure. Shall we talk about... Oh, wait, hold on. We, we can talk about Michael, or we can talk about Murphy and Fidelakius. Where do you want to go next? Um, let's talk about Murphy first. Murphy, my girl. I'd say that was a job offer. Yeah. Ah, this is... I, I have never shipped two characters so much as Murphy and Fidelakius. <laughs> These two were, <laughs> we were meant for each. I want to see Murphy wield that thing and just lay waste to demons and monsters and outsiders alike. I'm so excited for the future. Even if Murphy doesn't currently seem interested, you know, this is too much foreshadow foreshadowing, foreglowing, actually, if you're talking about Harry's sight, for me to think otherwise. This avenging angel image. Oh, God. It fits so well. It fits Murphy so well. And, and I, I'm sure... You know, I want her to keep her own agency. I want her to come around on her own, not to be forced into this position, but to embrace it. And the ability it would give her to directly save people, it's just, I think for Karen Murphy, that's just too much to let down or to turn down. So I can't wait so, for it. I'm really curious to see what happens with the, the swords going forward. If you remember uh, back in Death Masks, mm -hmm. I brought up that you know how how the three knights of the cross came from three different theological backgrounds and how i thought it may have been thematically appropriate for harry to pick up the sword at some point because he is of a different theological background and now here we at least are given to understand that michael is in retirement uh, and Amarachius needs a new wielder. Karen is also Catholic. 
or comes from a Catholic yeah, she's family. Irish Catholic or family at least, yeah. Yeah. Um and and so like it would make sense that she could step in and you know step into those empty shoes of Michael's and be the Catholic representative on on the the team. I don't agree with that. However, yeah. we get the added wrinkle about these bloodlines with uh, with all three of the knights being descended from kings. And that makes me wonder, you know, whether Murphy's ever going to uh you know, to really step up and become a knight of the cross because at least at least like off the top of my head there aren't really any like super famous Irish kings <laughs> for her to be descended from, you know, like, uh, oh, I don't like the idea that know, it has ma- to be maybe there will be some sort of, uh, like they'll, they'll have some like Viking ruler whose bloodline got mixed in Ireland and, and she's a descendant you know, of, you know, I would love if it but, turned out that Michael's bloodline was just a coincidence and that really it was his level of fierce, unre- like unwavering faith that Embarakius really, really responded to. And that, if Murphy can apply that same feeling to her devotion to protecting mankind, that Amarachius could, you know, shape itself to that. That'd be cool. I don't think it's going to be a coincidence. No. I, I think there was, that was too deliberate, you know, ending, ending the book with, Oh, I would just love it being Michael's Molly faith. Being, over oh yeah. Bloodline. By the way, you know, that would be so, by cool. the way, I, my homework, it's Charlemagne. And I was like, yeah, of course. Yeah. You know, the guy who founded the Holy Roman Empire, of course, the Catholic representative on the Knights of the Cross is going to be a descendant of him. Yeah. But. Yeah, Michael had uh, some seriously badass moments in this one, dude. Since we're, we're on Michael now. Yes, he did. You know, there, yes, he did. There, um, there's one scene that I originally wrote down to talk about here, but I know what a Michael fan you are, Drew. So I know how likely that one's going to be to turn up in your favorite scene. So I'm not going to spoil that one here. <laughs> yeah. I I do have a Michael scene in my favorite scenes, uh, but I only have one. I ended up like I had several op- options, uh, and and I I only ended up keeping one in there. But he he just I mean he's a great character. He's a a really good representation of what a merciful person should be, you know. I'm just so I, blown away by his cool factor. I can't even focus on anything else. <laughs> I mean, it would have been easy to make him just a, a cool factor character. That's all but I need. Butcher out of him. went out of his way yeah. to to give him depth, and I also like the way um, Michael foils Sonya in this book. Where even though they're both Knights of the Cross, Michael is a more understanding, uh, patient person oh, than yeah. Sonya. And, and is like clearly still kind of in this mentor role towards Sonya. And, and really Michael's in a mentor role toward everybody in his life because that's who Michael is. Yeah. You know, he's, he's exactly the kind of person you want to learn from, you know, like he's, he's the sort of person who makes those around him better people because they want to be like him. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would say I would love to buy a beer for and have a beer with Michael, but he's not the kind of. I would love to have a nice, toasty, warm milk by a fireside with Michael. That'd be cool. 
You, you think Michael wouldn't have a beer? No, I don't think. I, I think. Have you seen his attitude with Molly? I think he's like so anti-alcohol. I, am I getting that completely mm-hmm. uh, incorrect? I don't get that impression at all. I no. thought he had a moment specifically in uh, at the beginning of Proven Guilty where he was like lecturing her. It's like, have you been? Thi-? Oh, of course, she was underage. Underage. Well, yeah, she's right. seventeen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. Here, here it's like 19, 18 or nineteen, and so it's not that big of a deal when you're a, a teenager. Like yeah, 17, I think 18. she's nineteen now. I so, keep forgetting uh, guys are twenty one. This is something to bring up. Uh, we didn't bring this up on White Knight, but I did look it up afterward because we like talked about it on Proven Guilty and White Knight. Um, how you thought Molly was older, and I thought she was younger. Uh, there was one point where I was like, "She's underage," and you were like, "No, she's not. She's like nineteen. and um, is that what I said? Yeah, In it turns out guilty? there actually is a a discrepancy. Uh, in Butcher's original plan, he was going to write, um, uh, I, I believe it was White Knight and Proven Guilty, uh, or, or Deadbeat and Proven Guilty in a different order. He was going to have Deadbeat after Proven Guilty. And really? when they decided to make the next book in the series, the hardcover debut, uh, they wanted something more bombastic, so he moved Deadbeat up. And he never fully fixed the timeline issues. And so she's 17 in Proven Guilty, because she's absolutely underage. Because, like, the cops... That's the impression I got. That's why I was a little... Yeah. Okay. Um, But then White Knight is 10 months later, but she's 19 in white knight ah and yeah and so like there's there's some goofiness going on with molly's age yeah yeah i forget how we got on the subject here though i'm, I'm losing my train of thought uh, you were talking about having a beer with Michael. oh having a beer with michael that's right and i thought he was really yeah. really i thought yeah i thought michael was like a, a totally sober guy too like i didn't think he would have a beer i thought he was very very anti-alcohol uh, judging by a couple of things i didn't get I that impression i mean me. thought he said to molly earlier I, I could be totally mistaken there too i wonder how many times per episode i say something like that i wonder <laughs> i could be totally wrong there um <laughs> but yeah uh michael's just i don't even, you know michael's just he's so cool he's so cool i i fully get that there are probably layers to him that i'm not seeing but i'm just so uh enamored with how badass he is that I don't want to look anywhere else. I'm just a simple guy, man. Yeah. Eldest Gruff? Um, you want to talk about the I Eldest Gruff? I love the Eldest Gruff, man. The I, Eldest Gruff I, is pretty freaking cool, I'm not going to lie. How, like I the, cannot believe Butcher Man just the little detail. Yeah. The little detail that he has the cloaks of like three senior council members that he's defeated in duels was like, dang, mm. you know? Yeah. I love the fact that he's a tiny guy, you know? Mm-hmm. I love the fact that he was so badass. Uh, oh my god! Just um, was they was the Denarian that he totally screwed up. Started with an M. Magog. Magog. Yeah, just one blow, just a single woof. Oh. And then I and then his uh, his back and forth with Harry in the in the beginning of what I expect is going to be like a kind of like bromance between those two. I'm so yeah. Like, I I fully expect there there will be a a a reluctant rivalry between them. You know. Mm. I uh, just oh god and the way it ended with the donut I just that has that please has to be our our thumbnail right we have to convince Danny to do a donut <laughs> to, to do a to do a donut problem is the poor girl's only read like 
up to through book four, right? So this wouldn't be too much of a spoiler, would it? Have to explain to her why no, she's doing it. No, not at all. I mean, she did Sue, no, right? Just have her do, just have her do like a frosted donut with sprinkles. And then <laughs> she's gonna be so confused. <laughs> like, what? book ten, you want a thumbnail for a frosted donut with sprinkles and a jelly in the middle? <laughs> just uh so good. Anyway, yeah, um, I'm done with my character points. I'm ready to go through miscellaneous points and favorite scenes. Anything else character-wise before we continue? Um, Lucio. Ah, Lucio. Uh, this came out of nowhere for me. A little, a like, little I, bit far. I totally did not expect Harry and, and Lucio to... To have a thing well, like you picked up my first on my first miscellaneous point. It's actually right. This is probably a better character point, though. You're totally right. Continue with your. I just wanted, yeah, yeah. Like Lucio before this book didn't give off any of those vibes for me. Really? Uh, of of like being at all interested in Harry or in in like romance or sex. Weren't in there general. a couple of blatantly open glances in White Knight? I mean, maybe maybe there were, but I huh. I glazed over them if if so. Phrasing I, like she just yeah. Oh please, uh, oh, let's just answer that. That was a stupid. Thing. She just seemed so much business to me that her doing this like calculated bathing of herself before the fire. But that's the thing. Was she's, like she's been doing the whoa. the calculated <laughs> statue thing for like centuries now. You know. I guess I'm not saying it's like a bad thing or that it's like an inconsistency or, or like a plot hole. I'm just saying like, it really caught me by surprise. Mm. It didn't catch me by surprise. I mean, I was a little, uh, it's character. You know what? It, it sort of did take me by surprise, but not in the same way. The only reason it took me by surprise is because it happened faster than I expected it to. Now that Susan's out of the picture, mm. now now that it looks like, especially coming out of book, I want to say that was book eight, that uh, that uh, Harry and Murphy are at least you know on hiatus for now. I thought maybe Lucio could, uh, you know, this this could happen with Lucio, but I I would have expected another book or two of development to turn it into something a little more meaningful. Uh, not to say that it isn't meaningful for either of them. I, I who knows? It, it could still very well uh. turn into something like that. But I it, I have a theory about. I wasn't it, but... expecting home run. By you know as early as early as it happened, that I, I will say that. So, this is a prediction. Oh, um, I I don't think Harry and Lucio is going to last very long. Okay. Uh, I don't think Murphy and Kincaid is going to last very long, but I do think both of those relationships are going to teach them how to uh, adjust and will put them back on the track to get together. Uh, Lucio is going to show Harry like how to kind of, you know, take a deep breath and, and let his hair down a little bit and stop being so uptight about uh, commitment in relationships. And I think Kincaid is going to show Murphy uh, like, or her relationship with Kincaid, her feelings for him are, are going to kind of open the doors for Murphy to engage in something committed Mm. Uh, that that Harry needs. Yeah. So it, it may like I I do expect it'll take a few books for those those relationships to move on, but I yeah. I think both of them are uniquely situated to help Harry and Murphy learn some some lessons in love that will make them more compatible in the future. I suppose. Yeah. I mean, I I I'd already expressed a lot of 
bitter resentment over the fact that I thought Harry and Murphy was finally happening. And then having it put off again, book eight, I was like, oh my God, I would I expressed a lot of disappointment over that. Um, it's, it's occurred to me since then that if it had still happened at like book eight, book nine, book 10, we would have another large, large chunk of the series to go through in which they're in a relationship. So I, yeah, okay, I, I can see, you know, I can see why it's being put off a little longer. Uh, if Harry and Murphy had gotten together in book eight, I would have been like, Murphy's for sure dying. Yeah, see, that, that would have been that would have been a whole bunch of other complications, or there's going to be, yeah, because it, it would be hard to keep those two characters, I don't know, um, changing and keep them consistent with one another yeah. over like 12 more books, you know? Yeah. yeah, I can see that. I can see the utility of that. It's something I hadn't considered before. But um, si- mm-hmm. we're, since we are still loosely talking about Harry and Lucio, though, there's a conversation yes. that Thomas has with Harry, grilling Harry over mm-hmm. like Lucio's advances. He's so ex- exasperated with Harry's stubbornness and his refusal to pick up on hints, yada, yada. A few good points going both ways here, depending on which side of the fence you fall on. I'm more on Harry's side of the matter. If I can remember that conversation properly, that is. It's like I said, it's been a couple of weeks. Yeah, where Thomas was being a a, a literal peeping Tom. Oh, God. Why? <laughs> why, Drew? <laughs> yeah. You have to go ahead and add a wah, 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 wah to that one. But there's uh, there's something that bothered me during this. There's just a bit. It didn't bother me too much. I, I actually hesitated on whether or not I was going to bring it up at all. Um, what happened to the actual girl whose body Lucio now lives in? Do you remember? Is she dead? Is she completely out of the picture? Yeah, yeah, she got killed by the corpse taker. Okay, because I remember the corpse taker took Lucio's body at the end of Deadbeat, and I guess corpse taker had been in that body for a while. Yeah, I mean, the, the impression I got was that she, like, swapped bodies with this girl. And this girl and just faded her. from consciousness, or her consciousness just faded or, away? Or she, or she killed the girl in her old, in the corpse taker's old body. Oh, the, okay. Because I, I hope that's what happened. Like, do we... Okay, I just want to make sure we got it explicitly confirmed or at least heavily suggest that this poor girl is dead. Because... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, because... The way I see it, this isn't really Anastasia Lucio's body to be deciding these kinds of things over. Like, I, I like Lucio as a character. I think she and Dresden may be a bit of... <laughs> I was going to say wholesome. Not so wholesome, perhaps. Soul-repairing fun for one another. I, okay. I'm just a little skeeved up by the fact that this is a new body for Lucio. And the original victim's mind is gone, yet Lucio... You know, it's just, I just, at no point in the conversation with, about Lucio between Thomas and Harry, does either of them bring up what I would consider to be the chief concern of morality here? The fact that this is a several hundred year old woman in a 20 year old girl's body, 18 year old girl's body. Like. Yeah, like a college student. Yeah. Yeah. Like I didn't leave Deadbeat 2 all too clear on where that girl's consciousness ended up. So I, in this conversation, I was at least waiting for one of them to bring this up. And neither of them did, so I was a little confused by that. But uh, just okay, yeah. Oh yeah, I very much got the impression that she was killed by the corpse state. I would just hate it, okay, to to find out later that oh she's still alive somewhere inside her mind, and this is going to become a moral dilemma for Lucio, and it's like yeah, the the corpse taker's magic like swaps consciousness. That makes more sense. So when she takes over a new body, she puts the consciousness in the old body. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I I still wanted to bring it. It's just like. You're not, not skeeved out at all by the fact that this is not really Lucio's body. This is just some girl, some victim girl's body. I mean, I I didn't really give a second thought okay. to it. I mean, I mean um, this must be a... a, a, a just... I mean, like, this is one of those things that, that just gets, like, really muddy water uh, as far as morality goes because it's magic. Right. Like... 
I figured that the, at least the would author be... kind of gets to make his own rules with this stuff, and like, I don't know. Yeah, I just say like again between Harry and Dresden, Harry or sorry, Harry and Dresden between Harry and Thomas, Harry and Thomas. Point, point, point. Rebuttal, rebuttal. Joke, joke. I thought it would at least be at least be discussed. I thought it would at least be discussed. That's all. It oh, wasn't even Harry discussed. would be like, Harry would be like, oh, like, so, I don't know if this is cool, man. This girl's you know, like, a... you know. Not even a half of my age, if you know, by body wise, even though this is Lucio in her body, I get that, but it, yeah, I just no, I think Harry's supposed to be like in his late 20s, what right now? Yeah, hell no, he's like in his mid 40s, isn't he? No, no, I, actually, so I had a, I had a conversation uh, with some people on Discord about this. <laughs> are you, are you I thought Harry started the series in his early 30s, but apparently, he started it like in his like. Mid twenties, like he was like twenty four, twenty five. I thought he was like forty one in Stormfront. No, I was so impressed with his ability to run and like, wow. I mean, I'm still impressed because I can't yeah. run that much either. But <laughs> wow, okay. Uh, the the other thing. So after this conversation, I oh, actually I'm went to like um the Dresden wiki and was just looking up some basic things. <sighs> so I was trying to find like how old Harry is in certain books. Uh, but the other thing I saw was. He's listed as 6'9". Yo. No way. So I was thinking he was like 6'5", 6'6". 6'5", yeah. And so my point about him being like sleeping in a twin bed where I was like, there's no way this dude is 6'5", sleeping in a twin bed. There is definitely no way this dude is 6'9", okay, you know sleeping what? in a twin bed. This is going to sound... <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> no. You know what? Actually, I'm not going to say that. No, never mind. <laughs> That bed like comes down to his waist. <laughs> Suddenly, you know, at the end, the number of women throwing themselves at Harry makes sense. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'll take that comment back 100. That was just, that was a dick thing to say. Uh, oh. uh God, what was I going to say before that? What were we just on right before Harry? Uh, Lucio, Lucio's body. Lucio, Lucio's body. Um, uh, I can't remember. Oh well. I made the prediction about uh, relationships. Yeah. Um. Oh, I was, I was also going to say... I still, I still kind of... I, I know it's ridiculous it's not going to happen, but I still kind of want Harry and Lara to be, like, forced into some... Oh, that'd be cool. ...mutually beneficial Oh my marriage. god, that'd be so awesome. Because I, I just love their banter so much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I remember... I, I just remembered what it was I was about to say a few minutes ago, and I was going to say I'm significantly less skeeved out by the whole Molly coming on to Harry thing now, knowing that he's, like, 15 years younger than I was assuming he was. I mean, still not... I'm glad that he didn't go through with it, but okay. I oh, thought yeah, this was yeah. like a 17, 18, 19 year old girl coming onto a 45 year old man. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I believe he was like 28 or 29. And okay. She was so he's 17. like my age, which is still, yeah. again, not. Yeah. But, yeah. Like not, not a, not a cool age gap, but, <laughs> but still not like, uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. I get you. I get you. All right. Um, what else was I going to say? I still have a few miscellaneous points here. Uh, I did. I brought up my, my longest one. Oh, Toot Toot. Anything about Toot Toot? Can you just say how, how awesome Toot Toot is? Just hey, Toot Toot's fun. Fear not, yeah. Zalord. Zalord. Neither the foulest of rats nor the cleverest of insects shall disturb your home while we draw breath with his little sword in the air. I just... Mm. Uh, I would pay good yeah. money to, to just like hang out with Toot Toot for a whole day and hear his opinion on everything. <laughs> right? Uh, okay. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Sorry. Now, uh, go on. Uh, I needed to talk about Tutu for about 30 seconds, and now we've done that. Yeah, no worries. Uh, so, I did have uh, one miscellaneous point here um, that false stop, there is zero doubt in my mind. Okay. 
that Jib Butcher stole this joke. Oh. Okay. And you're going to know exactly where he stole it from as soon as I read this line to you. Uh Uh-huh. It took me a couple of hours to get my system straightened out, get showered, and get horizontal. And by the time I finally did it, did it, I was so tired that I could barely focus my eyes. Molly was committing dinner by that time. Ah, uh, yep. Yep. Uh, I, I seem to recall a particular line <laughs> between somebody named, if I recall, uh, <coughs> One Eye <coughs> and uh, Mother Goda. Yep. Yeah, okay. I, I For some reason, I thought I was going to get that name wrong. Where did that name come from, Mother Goda? How did I just summon that so, to my forefront? So, yeah, the full line is Molly was committing dinner by that time, aided and abetted by Sonya. Committing breakfast was the one from the... It, it is indeed committing breakfast. I'm going to yes. see if I can pull up that quote real here, uh, real quick here. Um, Give him the benefit of the doubt. It's a nod. Or a, a, I think the line was another breakfast was about to be committed. It's an homage. Let's call it what it is. <laughs> yeah. Let's, pay, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. It's an homage. Yeah, yeah. But it, it really made me laugh. Um, how? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we know Jim Butcher has drawn lots of inspiration from Glenn Cook. So I was like, of course he's going to use this joke. This is like one of the funniest jokes from... Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the funniest recurring jokes from the Black Company. It's so efficient, you know, about, too. Like, how bad Mother Goda. It's so efficient. Committing, and then you insert noun, breakfast, lunch, commit. It's just, it's two words, but you're saying so much more than those two. And I just, I love the efficiency of it. Sometimes yeah. I'm just blown away by the efficiency of language like this. So it's one of those things. You've brought this up on previous uh, Butcher episodes where... It's leaving the ball in the court of the reader. Yeah. It's establishing trust with the reader. Like, he he doesn't have to spend time explaining the joke. He lays it out there and lets you stop and be like, wait a second. You know, and get the chuckle out of it. Mm. <laughs> you know? I do love having that, that measure of respect and trust in the reader expressed in those moments that are just like a, a little uh, a little nod from the author, yeah. And I did notice yeah. that. The, the line in, in uh, She is the Darkness is, one eye was stirring, so was Goda. Another terrible breakfast was about to be committed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ah, oh, God bless Cook. Yeah. Yeah. Um, see here. Uh, oh, uh, just a Harry, a Harry Dresden one-liner that I that I really appreciated here. I had enough spare attention to notice when my feet cleared the water, and Deirdre surged out of the blackness and seized my ankles. Kill you, she snarled. Kill you for what you did to him. Holy crap, Thomas yelled. Ack! I agreed. <laughs> yeah. Just... <laughs> yeah. Ah, this... Uh, how do I explain this? The sheer... Sh- glee in the slapstick nature of, of those three words, Ack, I agreed. So, yeah, so like, wonderful. I have a really hard time putting my figure exactly on why some elements of this humor lands for me and others don't. Like, oh, there so are lots of... I know what you're about to say. I know ex- I think I know exactly what you're about to say. Go ahead. Oh, I, I'm, I'm just expressing uh, a lack of understanding on my part, or like 
there are lots of things that you love you get a huge crack out of in in dresden that i i was just like kind of rolling my eyes at and like i didn't find very funny yeah but then there are some little things like this where i'm like yeah like that made me chuckle yeah and i i would really need to like stop and and break it down and and i would also need to have a way better grasp of humor what you feel like Like, i have a better grasp of humor than you do i highly doubt that like like i'm not a good writer of humor like i don't understand what makes like i don't have a a mechanical understanding of what oh my god you're giving me so many ideas for short episodes talking about humor (laughs) in particular where we get together and have like our we we gather our five favorite jokes each in epic fantasy we talk about them tons of fun that'd be so much fun wouldn't it oh maybe that'll be our november short yeah we try and figure out where those lines are drawn and, and what it is that we appreciate separately or together that'd be so much oh i love it yeah they're I just, I don't know. I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, they, you don't have to. You're a human being, man. Yeah, but I wish I did. If there's a formula for it. I did understand it, then I could be a better writer. <laughs> okay, that, that's fair. The more the more that you can uncover, the better of a writer just by, uh, yeah, I, I, I totally get I could that. I actually write humor in my own stuff instead of like occasionally stumbling over a funny line being like, oh, uh, oh, I, I lucked into I that I will one. say like, I love writing. I love writing humor. I love it. It's, ah. Uh, <laughs> I'm so bad at it. I once I am terrible. This is something I'm probably going to regret uh, admitting. I once wrote an entire season of Machinima, when when in in the entire thing was styled oh, yeah. so closely after Red versus Blue, or I should say Red versus Blue to get it correct. That um, it it was. I still actually have the the the, the duotang right over there. It's like six feet behind me. Actually, I, I was cleaning out the room recently. Um, this is written like I think twelve years ago now. It's it's like. Oh, it's a whole season. It's 12 episodes and it's entirely dialogue. 100% dialogue. Mm-hmm. So it's just jokes through the entire thing. It's probably 100 pages of jokes. I, that's my, I love writing that. I love it. And maybe that's why I love Harry Dresden as much as I do in the way that I do. No, no. It's like some sort of wild cat. What, like a puma? Yeah, like yeah, a like puma. A <laughs> yeah, like a puma. Yeah, like a puma, Dan. There you go. <laughs> oh, God. I think Red vs. Blue and Dragon Ball Z Abridged have to be the hardest I've ever laughed at anything. Those, if you want like a, a, a microscopic view at Rob's style of humor, it's Red vs. Blue and Dragon Ball Z Abridged. Mostly Red vs. Blue. I love that insult based. See, just, see and, and that tells you right there. Where like I, I haven't watched all of Red vs. Blue. I've watched, I think, three seasons of it. Oh, dude. And it was really hit or miss for me. Oh. Like, like a lot of it, I just kind of wa- sat there and was like, huh. And then every once in a while, they would have one line that I would just die laughing. Oh, you need seasons like, four and five are like distilled red versus blue humor. That's like right there. <laughs> that's the deadbeat of red versus blue universe. So that's <laughs> seasons four and five. Yeah, but okay. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, we're we're still on. <laughs> we are still on butchery here. Um, yeah, yeah. Miscellaneous points. So okay, um, we get something. Uh, we get mentioned of something called the Lucifer Stone. In chapter 36, yes. and I have the quote here. I don't remember the context because it's been a couple of weeks. I just have, like, this this one sentence. It was a young one, burning bright. You know. What is a Lucifer stone? I, is it, 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 it's a, a stone that provides light. Um, oh. So Lucifer, like... Lightbringer. The name means light. Yeah, I know that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's... Oh, um, it's it's a thing oh, from. Damn, I thought this was gonna be like some substance from the outside or something like that. Oh, okay. 
Well, well, no, there's, um, I, I think it is worth noting though, that we get like an actual reference to the Prince of Darkness sure. in this, where, where Harry kind of comes to the conclusion that he's like, the Denarians couldn't have done this by themselves. They had to have helped from Satan himself. Like, yeah. To set up these, uh, these pentagrams with the hellfire. Like there was that much power involved. And then we get freaking archangels. Finally. Yeah. <laughs> like, hell yeah. Hell yeah. Although I got to say, I really hope, really hope archangels get handled differently in this than they were in supernatural. Yeah. I agree. I do agree. Supernatural is not meant to be, uh, <laughs> you know what? No, I'm going to stop talking before I piss somebody off. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mm -hmm. love supernatural seasons one through five. <clears throat> uh, Yes. Um, Soulfire. But. Soulfire's yeah, thing. Yeah, now, now, a... now, my point about Soulfire is actually a really dumb one. Um, but I think it's still worth pointing out. For those who don't know, if you've just randomly joined partway through our Dresden Files episodes, for instance, uh, it'll be kind of weird, but hey, power to you. This is my first time through the series. I was slightly shocked. Not too shocked. Uh, in my case, to hear the word Soulfire used several times. And when I was listening to the book, um, and if you're a patron, you may or may not have read my own short fiction pieces, which I released one last year. It was called Convictions, I think. Um, I have a character whose name is Soulfire. Literally spelled the exact same way. And so I'm just going to have to pay attention to that. Obviously, it's just one character. It's not like a, a magical power or anything, but it is the exact same word. And so I'm going to, I don't know. I'm just going to have to watch how I treat it from, from there on. But I figured it was at least mentioning here. So... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Um, I'm done. My miscellaneous points. Do you have any remaining? Now let's let's go to favorite seeds. Oh, I'm so excited. This this book has so many worthy competitors. I'm. It did. This next five to ten minutes is, is the, always the best part of the episode. Always. Okay. Um. <sighs> third favorite. Actually, can I make a prediction about? No. 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 I'm not going to do that. I already know it. I've already. I'm pretty sure I have it confirmed. I'm just going to continue with my third favorite. So my third oh, favorite. Okay. <laughs> no, I was I was going to do it, but. Ah, um, Nicodemus uh, calling over the phone for Harry. This is my third favorite scene, revealing that he can see Harry, what he's wearing, asking if he should have his men open fire on the girl at the sink. That's just, it's a different level of threat always when Nicodemus is around. I love this guy as a villain. It, this scene is so tense and it's so effective. I thoroughly enjoy it. So it's my third favorite. Okay. Okay. Um... My third favorite was the helicopter arriving with a Valkyrie at the wheel, blasting Wagner. Oh, but we've had Wagner before. I was actually a little, a little bleh about that because we had. Vog I was laughing so hard. We had Wagner like, in Summer so Night, was, though. Well, not Summer Night. Um, I was out at Death dinner Mask. while I was reading this scene, and I just like started laughing at the table. You were reading a book like, at dinner. Yeah, it, it was uh, actually. So hilarious coincidence again. I was at a like Japanese hibachi steakhouse. Oh, oh, um, okay. And I, I, yeah, like Lauren was was out working, and and I was you know feeling lazy, and I had a coupon, and there's one of them like right across the street from our our condo. So I was like, yeah, I'm just gonna go over and you know eat some some teriyaki and and read, and uh, and so I I was by myself, 
But, but yeah, I also chuckled when I got to the end of the book and Harry and Lucio go to a hibachi steakhouse. <laughs> yeah. For their date. It's kind of like those um, moments when Harry talks about, you know, plasma cutting holes through steel while I'm plasma cutting holes through steel. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. It's like a little bit of an odd moment. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Okay. Yeah. Now, second favorite then. I'm so glad. Uh, you, yeah. I'm so glad you didn't take this from me. Like is thou jelly within thy donut? Nay, but pretty with sprinkles upon it instead, I said solemnly, and frosting of white. You could take time to locate such a pastry, the gruff said seriously. Ah, oh, God. I don't even know. I'm not, I'm not even going to explain why. It speaks for itself. I just want more of this. I want a whole, like, bad boys style buddy cop movie between Harry Dresden and the eldest gruff. Yeah, that would be very interesting. Likest thou jelly within thy donut? Those are my favorite. That's maybe my favorite that's, sentence. That's why I'm saying ever. that when we do the jelly donut, or, or we do the donut for the logo, we need to not do jelly donut. <laughs> why? We just got to do a, a, a. Because he asks if you want if if Harry wants jelly, and he says no. Give me a a, a frosted. Oh my god! Sprinkled donut. Oh my god! I just thank you, Drew. That I'm so sorry. <laughs> I just realized the point that you have been trying to get me to see for like two days now. It just clicked. I am so sorry. I was I was so focused on the fact that you were concerned about spoiling this for Danny, and I was confused about the fact that she had already done Sue. No, I I never had any. For some about reason, my brain was her. just completely turning off the fact that your concern was the specific detail about jelly being in the donut when Harry turns down the jelly. Yeah. I'm so dumb, man. I'm sorry about that. Oh God, what is it yeah, like being friends with like me? A, it's got to be a pain in the ass. With vanilla frosting and sprinkles. Okay, God, what is? I'm I'm so God. I feel so stupid right now. This may be the dumbest I've ever felt on the Inking Out Loud podcast. Okay, all right, all right. Your second favorite scene, my man. Okay. God, I'm so dumb. Uh, change of tone. Um. Just the opening, uh, the snowball fight with the carpenters. Oh, it's still a jolly. It was so wholesome. It was so so heartwarming. Yeah. Like once again, my favorite parts about Harry are when he's being a father figure, and we see him playing with these kids and you know and having fun and, and letting them do ridiculous things and pulling pranks on each other and and then Charity gets involved and stuffs the snowball down his his neck and it, it just puts such a smile on my face yeah uh, yeah yeah i was so hoping that harry it. would just whip up like a like a, a a snow hurricane and then just like use that for cover and then like ambush them from behind with like a wave of snow that'd be so like ah uh, you know so like it was a very genuinely wholesome moment and it terrified me because i figured oh my god if the book is opening on this positive of a note where could this be going I was worried. They got real dark. I was, yeah. I was worried that this this would end on the darkest note that we've seen yet. So, and it, it ended pretty dark. So, but yeah. Yep, yep, yep. It, it did end dark. That is for damn yeah. sure. All right. Well, my favorite scene. This may come as a surprise to nobody who knows of my Canadian nature and my my love of sea shanties. This is. Chapter 45, with Harry piloting Thomas's boat, while under 
strong enemy fire and he's singing sea shanties. I just, yeah. uh, this series has achieved, or I should say it's actually long since achieved this sense of reckless fun. And it's, it's, it's hard to talk about it without just smiling at this point constantly. My face hurts because I'm constantly smiling when I'm talking about these moments at all times. I'm a Canadian. I have a lot of East Coast influence, so I love my sea shanties. And the, the image of Harry deciding, screw it, if this is my moment, this is my moment. And I'm just going to have as much fun with this as I can. He's just singing those sea shanties as he's under fire. It's yeah. <laughs> so much fun. So much reckless, uh, unapologetic fun. It's just so pure. And because it's I just it's so distilled everything of what I love about Harry's sense of humor. Um, it had to be my favorite this week. Yeah. So my favorite was a scene we've already talked about. And it was Michael confronting Harry about his blasting. Uh, and and the ah. missing memories. I just once again the the mercy, the understanding that Michael is willing to show, uh, the the love with which he confronts his friend. Uh, he just he really is a, an incredible example of a good man. Mm. Yeah, I'll elaborate on something I said right as we were starting this segment for the my favorite scenes. I was going to expect, I was going to predict that your favorite scene was going to be uh, Harry's conversation in the chapel, you know, once Michael is injured, you know. I had that on my list. I knew you would. And then I, <laughs> and then I was like, no, I don't, I don't want to have two... You know what? Yeah. And my, my prediction. But I, I needed the Wagner. I needed the Flight of the Valkyries on there. So I bumped so the. Yeah. How did you feel about Jake, though? Because I feel like Jake was going to. I liked like, it. As I was reading through this scene, I thought Drew's going to love Jake. Drew's going to love Jake. Drew is going to. This is going to be in, in Drew's favorite scene somewhere. So I wrote down the, the prediction there. Yep. Predicted beforehand this is going to be one of Drew's favorite scenes. And then we found out that Jake himself was actually not simply a custodian that he has ties to or may actually be an archangel. And I was like. Oh, I wonder, I was going to ask you if that cheapened it at all for you specifically. No. No? Because I feel like Jake just being a custodian, just being one one man of faith, just one one guy, one human being establishing this human connection with Harry in this moment of suffering, you know, I feel like that might have had more impact for you. So that wasn't like the, the revelation that there were ties to the angel, you know, didn't... Uh, Lower it for you? No. Okay. I, the the moment they actually started talking, I knew Jake wasn't just like some other random. Right. Dude. Right. Okay. Okay. Like I, I didn't have a problem with that. At yeah, all. I, was, in fact, I, I was. I really liked. I was it. fully yeah. uh, aware in the it, during reading this, or I should say, listening through this scene. I was like, this is going to be Andrew's list. It totally is. That's yeah, why I started this it, off uh, with that with that awkward cutoff. Like I'm going to predict. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, I didn't want to steal it from you. When I first started, like, putting my favorite scenes together, I had this as my favorite scene. Oh, wow. And oh, wow. I, I nailed it then. then. I was, Almost. I was moving things around, and and ultimately it ended up getting bumped out because I wanted to include Guard f flying in. Yeah, that was pretty cool with Wagner. Um, yeah. I, I still want to hear yeah. Fortunate Son, though. That would be an excellent next one for a helicopter ride in. <laughs> Especially with Harry Dresden's style, his his whole aesthetic. I feel like a, a Vietnam song, a war song, would be just ah oh, great. But yeah, Wagner is an excellent choice. Yeah. All right. 
Are we all done for today? Anything else you want to say about this book, about Small Favor? Yeah, so I, I think this is my second favorite so far. Very narrowly edged out by Proven Guilty. Where does it fall in for you? It's a good question. Um, it's one of the stronger ones for sure. Um, I think it would be about around the halfway mark, maybe a little higher than the halfway mark. I still liked Deadbeat more. I still liked Proven Guilty more. I still liked Blood Rights more. Fight me. Oh my god. Anyone. <laughs> uh, but... Yeah, this, this is probably the next one down. This is friendship over. <laughs> it's good. Oh, but uh, I'm just thinking of that top of the train fight scene in uh, in book five. Can, and also, let's stop and you know what? This is something that occurred to me while I was driving. I'm spoiler. I'm a little bit ahead. I'm actually almost done with turncoat. Um, Jeez. But I was thinking as I was going through. Actually, it might not have even been turncoat. It might have been during one of these more. Uh, spectacular scenes you were referring to earlier in this or the last episode but i was laughing at the fact that in book five i was making a big deal over how badass harry can be because he jumped from one train car top to the next train car top with a forzare behind him to propel himself and land in front of the two other knights and i was like oh that was so cool i can't believe how cool harry dresden is what a pleb noob move that would be if he did that now the, the the stuff we've seen <laughs> Harry do, particularly I think in like book nine against all of the ghoul army and everything like that, that was like that like uh it's just it's funny to me that five books ago I was la- I was making a big deal over Harry jumping from one train car to the next. I just I love seeing this growth, and you're right. I'm kind of concerned about the creep level of it, the power creep, but we'll see where it goes. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I hear changes yeah. is going to be a big deal, and I am very close to it now. Yeah. I'm like a quarter book Even- away from it. Even before, um, uh, you know, we started covering Dresden for years, any time I saw any discussion on forums or, you know, Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, Discord, wherever about Dresden, changes always came up. That, like, it was... People people made a big deal about how every book in the series is titled Two Words. Storm front, dead beat. Oh wow! You're right. White knight, small favor, death masks, changes, and and how that was like the biggest freaking deal that this one book has a one word title. And I remember it it coming up in discussion a couple years ago, or or maybe a year ago, um, when. When it was announced, no, it must have been two years ago, when it was announced that that the two books were going to come out pretty much back to back. The the two books that had been so long coming, uh, Peace Talks and Battleground. And people were freaking out because it was like, oh my gosh, Battleground is one word. It's going to be another one of these insane one word books. But then Battleground is actually titled Battleground. Really? Two the fact that it can and, be contracted. And it has me very much like curious uh and and paying attention um obviously i'm not plugged into the fandom i'm trying to restrain myself from getting any spoilers or anything like that at this point now that i actually know what i'm reading um but i'm curious as the series goes on if there are going to be any other books uh titled with just one word and if it's actually going to hold true to the trend that people are suspecting they see interesting like it, it wouldn't surprise me if, if like the last book in the series is one. Sure, that would be awesome. Like or or go, or go um, over three words. 
Or three yeah. words. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. <laughs> I always just want to screw things up. I just, I just, I'm that chaotic neutral kind of guy. <laughs> uh, sometimes gets but, me I mean, in trouble. It, it, it's, it's like the same, you know, the same conceit as Glenn Cook is, or a similar conceit as Glenn Cook's titles in Garrett P.I., where all of the titles are the same formula of, uh, you know, an adjective, a metal, and a plural noun. Sweet silver blues, bitter gold hearts, cold copper tears, you know, no. red brass shadows, petty pewter gods. You know, there, there's a, and so like, and, and I, I admit I haven't looked far enough at, at all the rest of the titles. There may be one title in, in the Garrett series that, that like changes like that. <laughs> Huh? Yeah. Oh, um, another one. Ah. But uh, I I don't know that for sure. It it, it may just be you know a, a solid motif all the way through. But uh, yeah. But it, it is on my mind now uh, as far as the Dresden Files goes. Um, whenever he publishes new books, now it, it'll be kind of like pinging my radar if if a title isn't two words. Uh, question, since we're talking about future books, I noticed something when I was going through and I was spending some extra Audible credits. There are books that are uh, chronologically labeled 12.5, 5, 13.5, 14.5. Yeah, story collections. So how are we going to handle those? I'm sure we're going to get asked that. Let's at least get it out of the way on air. Uh, we have already been asked it many times. Have we? And the answer is, as of right now, I don't know. Okay, you must have been taking the, the fire for those. Okay. Or the yeah. uh, catching those questions before uh, I see I, them. I just plain have not had the energy lately to sit down and figure things out Ex- and and plan what we want to do. Excellent material for uh, short episodes, perhaps. Though I mean, yes, uh, that is that is very much on the table. Uh, the one thing that I do know we're planning on doing is we're going to do two episodes on changes. Nice. Okay, I'm really excited about that. So. Okay. Uh, yeah. But I, I think at that point now we should head into the final draft. This is already, I think, the longest Dresden episode we've had. No way. We're only at like an hour 15 right now. Yeah. Uh, haven't, haven't they all been like an hour long? No. I would not hmm. believe, not for one minute do I believe that. Really? Surely we had an hour and a half in some of them. Now. Uh, so Proven Guilty was an hour eight. White Knight, an hour one. Deadbeat, an hour 14. Blood Rites 59. Oh no, Death Masks was an hour 41. There you okay. go. I knew we had an hour and a half, right, one or yeah. plus in there somewhere. Yeah. Grave Peril was an hour 44? Yeah. Holy cow. That was with uh, uh, Craig Hanks. No, sorry. That was book two with Craig Hanks. Sorry. Uh, yeah, Full Moon with Craig. Oh yeah, of course. The ones where we had guests are longer. Right. That makes a little more yeah. sense if we try to give everybody at least yeah. you know equal talking time. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Explains the invasion of the McCaffrey episode. This is much longer than the recent episodes. <laughs> yeah, this is much longer than the recent episodes. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. So. Final draft? Final draft. What are you talking okay. about? So, I'm going to give everybody a cheat code to life right now. I'm going to make your lives a little bit better. I'm going to make your coffees a little bit better because I've been drinking a coffee. And check this out. You may want to crucify me for here, but uh, hear me out. Flavored water is a wonderful thing. Okay? Especially if it's non carbonated. If you add just a tiny dash, and by a dash, I mean like a literal capful of flavored water to your coffee before it starts to pour. This one here is a uh, Nestle uh, raspberry water. It will give you the slightest ever so delightful hint of 
extra little like flowery goodness to your to your delicious warm coffee that you drink way too late at night and it's going to keep you up forever like it does <laughs> for me um that's what i've been drinking i drank a a starbucks uh roasted coffee dark roasted coffee in the keurig with a splash just just like a millimeter or two of raspberry flavored water and it's it was it was divine it was one of the best coffees i've ever had in my life so you're welcome you can write that down and uh i expect to hear how amazing it is all right well i am drinking a double ipa from anchorage brewing company Mm, anchorage again we i love seeing anchorage okay yeah yeah uh 8.4 percent definitely tasty i mean it is uh hmm it doesn't have the like really piney in fact i i do not know off the top of my head what kind of hops are in this it it doesn't have that like traditional west coast ipa piney hop bitterness but it's also not like a really fruity you know new england ipa kind of profile oh Hmm. It's like really floral. That's how my coffee was. Delightful. A little floral, even though it was technically fruit, which is raspberries or berries is a berry, but mm. it, it, it was just a hint of floral. It was so nice. Yeah, it's really nice. But this one goes out to uh, the Denarians, that, uh, that group of, oh boy. of demons, of fallen angels. Oh no. And I don't know if, if uh, this will be as appropriate as as on the nose as i'm hoping it is uh because this hasn't come up yet in the series but i'm, I'm kind of waiting for it uh this beer is called lilith's brethren Ooh, interesting how many times today i was playing diablo and killed lilith the god <laughs> the the primeval <laughs> or uh yeah that's cool yeah yeah hell yeah so so let's see. This is going to be what episode one one forty. You probably have a better idea yeah. than I do, since uh, you are going to be inserting Ooh. a Star Wars episode here. I think somewhere. Uh, I think the Star Wars episodes are going to be after this one. This is going to be um, one forty. This is going to be directly following White Knight. Yes. Damn, dude, we just had White or Knight no, come uh, on, didn't we? Directly following Sweet Silver Blues. Rather. Oh, right, right, right. I forgot we got that that excellent Glenn Cook goodness in there. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, next up is almost certainly going to be the Krydos Trap, book three of uh, Michael A. Stackpole's X-Wing Rogue Squadron books. Uh, as always, check us out on Patreon if you want to support the show. As Rob said at the, the top of the top of the episode, we got all kinds of fun benefits there. And if you want to make a one-time donation, check us out on Coffee KO-FI. I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey. And with me is my awesome co-host, Rob Santos. Right here. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.